The Dime is sponsored by ETH Revolution. The cannabis industry has unique challenges, which means you need a multifaceted partner to help you navigate the landscape. ETH Revolution has a team of experienced science and business experts to provide a unique analytical approach, providing services from capital to cannabinoid and everything in between. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. As always, I've got my right-hand man, Kellen Finney, here with me. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Jordan Hiley, investor and educator. Jordan, how you doing? Welcome to the show. I'm doing well today, guys. Thanks for having me on. Happy to talk about cannabis and uh, this big generational opportunity no one seems to be aware of. Yeah. And some people may be aware of, and we're excited to kind of get the others that are not aware of a little more excited. Kellen, how you doing today? I'm doing well. Doing well, Brian. How about yourself? Doing good. Thank you. So I think before we start, Jordan, I think it'd be great for our listeners to get a little background about you and kind of what got you interested into cannabis. Okay. So I'll try to keep that short. I, uh, I studied at university with the idea of becoming a teacher. So sort of communicating and teaching has always been something that I'd like to, like to do and wanted to do. What got me back interested in cannabis though, I would just want to say that, you know, as a, as a teenager in a culture where, you know, you start drinking early in high school, and then there's cannabis and you're told growing up that cannabis is what's going to kill all your brain cells. And then just by personal experience, like, well, that doesn't seem to be the case when I try one, you know, versus the other. And so for me, what, what just became very interesting about cannabis was, you know, returning to Canada in 2017. So I'll touch a bit on that in, in a moment, but returning to Canada and seeing that in, it was going to be a reality that in Canada we were legalized. And that was a process that was being done. Now, just to back up a bit, I said I studied to be a teacher and then I could have gone to teacher's college in Canada for two more years. So it's like I could have paid for more training to become a teacher. Or I knew that there was the opportunity to go teach English in Asia. And that just caught me. I was like, I thought about it a lot. And I was like, that just sounds like a better play to go get paid to teach to learn, um, actually do it and then get to travel and all that. So I took a different path. And that's sort of probably what's kept me on a different path than most people now. So yeah, I went to teach in Asia. And then I just want to say that I think this is really cool. Also, just that like didn't realize it at the time, but I had just a good saving habit. I decided to save half my paycheck every month and then live off the rest. So after the two years in Korea, I had $30,000 saved and didn't think of it as a skill at the time. Even like my ex-girlfriend was like, you're just so cheap. And I was like, no, this is a good habit. Hopefully I'll be wealthy someday. But then, so just the whole idea with that is that after the year teaching abroad, I had saved up so much. And, but the first thing I did was I invested some in Canada through a financial advisor in mutual funds, like the classic way. So we'll get back to that later, but that's just something I did initially. Then I went to travel for a whole year with 20 grand. Um, and that sort of just opened my eyes to the value of a dollar. And, you know, how people everywhere are kind of the same, want the same thing generally, as long as, you know, basic necessities are taken care of. So that just sort of took me around the world. And then I came back to Canada and cannabis was going to be legalized. So I think that's just a good bit of history on how I came to be self taught investor and all that, uh, doing what I do now. I just have a random tangent I have to ask. Were you part of the TOEFL program? No, not TOEFL, but I did United TESOL. Okay. My sister was part of TOEFL and she taught in Asia for five, six years. So I just figured I might as well throw it out there. You never know. Yeah. No, it's cool. Like they're sort of similar in that they're required to get into like Japan, China, and Korea, some of the more, more restricted countries, I guess, for teaching and because they'll pay you a better salary and all that. So they want you to have more training, but it was just such a cool experience. And I honestly had some of the best times of my life. So it was looking back, it was just like, so grateful I did that. But then I just want to like take this point and then lead that into how I became an investor. Yeah. Because so I had that 10,000 K I invested in classic mutual funds through a financial advisor. Cause I just asked my dad, I was like, Hey, I need to build some wealth. How do I do this? And so it was funny though, because a year after or a year and a half after that initial investment, 
I'd come back from traveling and decided to come home and just start over sort of thing. And I found out that I owed $1,400 in tax penalties because I invested when I was a non-resident. So I'd come home, visited for a month, invested that 10K, then went backpacking. If you're not living in Canada, you can't use uh, a TFSA, which would be like your Roth IRA because you're not living there paying tax. So I found that out and I was like, you know, I, I was someone that thought investing was too risky, so I wouldn't do it myself. But I was like, if this financial advisor can do this and not know the rules, this is ridiculous. Like I must be able to learn how to invest. And then I found out the difference between a real financial advisor and a mutual fund sales representative. Then I found out about the fees. Then I went down the rabbit hole of what is money and then started managing my money myself. But so it's just funny how like that's that sort of thing was done there and it brought me back into here. So it was like kind of cool how it worked out full circle. I applaud you for kind of going down that hole and figuring out and not being deterred from the call it failure, the bad experience, because a lot of people might be a little more hesitant to kind of continue on that same path. But it seems like you kind of went the other route and kind of doubled down and said, you know what? I can figure this out myself. This is not going to be an opportunity for me to, to shy away. I'm going to kind of dive in and get my hands dirty and figure it out. So I guess my follow-up question could be, what was the first cannabis company that caught your eye where you started kind of figuring out like there might be something here as an opportunity? Yeah. So good timing. So I think this whole kerfuffle with that financial advisor happened around September of 2017. And then it was November 2017 that I got around to opening my first self-directed uh, investing account. And that was Aurora, actually. So my first try investing was with Aurora Cannabis back in 2017, before everything had gotten a little bit out of control valuation-wise. And it just it opened my eyes. Within two weeks, I had doubled my money with equity. And I was like, holy crap, investing works. So it was Aurora. I was in, I think I bought it at 257. I sold out two weeks later or a week later at $5 and something just because I didn't know what I was doing. But I was like, this can't go on forever. But that, that was the first company. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, we can talk about this offline. I was in on that same, right around that same time. And my eyes were like, holy shit. It, it was it wild. Was, it wild. Wild. And, and I think there's opportunity to kind of bring that back to US. And before we kind of dive into like the fun stuff and the investing standpoint, let's kind of take a different approach and talk about kind of like the, the history of cannabis. I, I think sometimes it's not really spoken about, about how we got to the point we are. So let's kind of take it back from the beginning and, and start with like the story you were sharing before we started recording. Good point. Yeah. So, um, well, on my channel too, there's a, I did a series last year called Reality Check Cannabis in 2020, and I did an eight episode series. Forget exactly, but at that time I was like, okay, this is like, I had the thought last year that the Senate and the Dem, like Biden could win, the Senate could actually flip just because things had gone so far one way. It almost just feels like it, it has to go back the other way. I had learned a lot about the history of cannabis myself there too. And it was just how like, you know, first discoveries or first findings of it goes back 10,000 years to China being used as an original sort of textile for cloth, material, rope, um, and then medicine. There's actually an excerpt that I have from that series. So it's it's a bit of a wrap, like I wrap on the series. So I'm just going to go through it for you guys here. But just, just goes to show it's like an entertaining way to sort of learn the, the medicine. But then what I'll get to is like the factors that helped it become illegal. That's something that I learned. And I just want to mention because you can look at it and just realize that it's like, it's just people that had power that made decisions and it can be changed, but it's just crazy that it hasn't since then. But learning about like how cannabis as an actual medicine um, over the years was just that, that was really eye opening. And then even just my personal experience with it, seeing the data coming out now more and more, um, it just made me want to look and it reaffirmed everything. But just this is it. So here's where it gets crazy. It's the OG anesthetic. If you're still numb to the pain caused over the years, it's pathetic. This man mixed cannabis with wine to get invasive in the skin. It worked. He realized it helps you heal from within. Discoveries of this magnitude were far and few in between. Arabic scholars figured out its effectiveness for epilepsy. At the same time, Evicenna found it to be effective treatment for gout, edema, headaches, 
This got published and repeated. And so then this is like 6,000 years ago to 4,000 years ago. Centuries later, used by Arab traders for asthma, malaria, and fever. From India and East Africa, the commodity was a keeper. Traveling alongside the Spanish brought to the Americas, used practically for clothes and rope before the mass hysteria. Napoleon brought some back from Egypt to investigate the crop. Its pain-relieving sedative qualities helped with tumors and cough. Since the 1800s, cannabis rose to pharmaceutical success. Irish doc O'Shaughnessy deemed it had no negative medical effects. And so this was in the 1850s. It was introduced in the U.S. pharmacopoeia in 1842, actually, as well, because it was becoming popular in the U.S. By 1900s, more than 100 papers published its therapeutic uses for nausea, rheumatism, and pain, and over-the-counter solution. Cannabis was never seen as criminal, an idea totally absurd, until it became associated with one little four-letter word, drug. But so it just goes to show how, like, that's what anyone, you know, hundreds of years ago, 200 years ago would think of the plant. Um, and it's funny how we've been grown up to think of it as the complete opposite. And that's sort of the anomaly. I think that's really well said, right? And it goes into like the stigma aspect of it. And if you ask a large group of people, depending on where you are in the world, you're going to get mixed responses, right? You have some people who say, it's a gateway drug. We got one of our favorites, the devil's oh. lettuce, right? Um, and you got my personal favorite, the governor of Nebraska. If you legalize cannabis, it will kill your kids, which right. I will still put up there on the my favorite quotes of all time because it is just so ridiculous. At the it's same so age. delusional. It's, it's so it's delusional. Just, it's wild. Yeah. And it's in this year, right? Like we're not even talking about something that, that happened 10 years ago, 15 years ago, current. So like for someone like him, who's hopefully knowledgeable about what's actually happening to make a statement like that, that's so backwards is eye-opening. So I guess starting from the stigma standpoint, based on what you said, Jordan, how do we go forward and start educating people on the benefits of cannabis and start with removing the stigma? Because I feel like we can talk about the benefits, but people aren't going to get past that issue they have with thinking and knowing for so long that cannabis is just bad. That's a great question. I don't think it's... (laughs) There's no simple answer. Um, I do think it's really a matter of individuals sort of choosing maybe, you know, their own lived experience over the, um, the, the message, the common messaging in society. Um, I also think too, it's like, I, I don't know about you, but I, I go through a lot of the studies and I see what comes out. And despite saying that, hey, THC or CBD seems to be very effective, all of these studies also say, but there needs to be a lot more looks into it. And it's just like, no, no, at this point, we know THC seems to be the miracle pain reliever. And we know CBD is good for inflammation and other things. And like, I don't know, it's when our established institutions start to actually like take that seriously. And I think that will probably come from descheduling it because people need the, you know, the government to do it first and all that. But like, it's just, it's going to take decades, not decades, but like, it's just generations. It's going to take generations. But I think the good thing is, is that at least, I don't know how old you guys are, but like, we're pretty far into our life where I think any generation below us is going to be aware of what the, you know, more truth about the plant versus people that are older than us. But I think, yeah, probably descheduling just because people, they want it to come from the government or from leadership institutions for it to be true sort of thing, right? So, Kellen, shed some light on that. I know we've been to some conferences a while back where there were representatives. And of course, we can't mention specifics or any of those kind of conversations. But it seems like the government's been interested in kind of learning more about this and how to regulate this. Can you kind of shed some light on that? Yeah, I mean, it was even five years ago, I was at a a conference out in California that was strictly a science-based conference associated with cannabis, right? And the conference was the Emerald Conference. And so really, really heavy science, a bunch of really smart scientists presenting very intense scientific research that they've been doing on the plant. And there was groups from certain branches of the federal government that were there as focus groups internally that had been assigned. And at the end of the day, I think we were talking with some, some individuals the other day too, that it's kind of like a, an old Western standoff, right? Like the DEA, the FDA, and 
other governing bodies that typically regulate these kind of uh, substances, at least in the U.S., are all standing there in a little standoff. And, and unfortunately, though, they are not the ones that are going to be able to decide what happens. It's going to, at least in the U.S., it's going to have to come from the Senate and the House, right? Like, we're going to have to pass a bill through our legislative branch to be able to change the opinion of the masses. And like, you can reference surveys that say over 60% of the US population would approve of recreational cannabis right now. But unfortunately, the representatives that are speaking for part of those individuals that are in favor of cannabis legalization don't share those same opinions, right? Because if they did, it would already be legalized, right? And so there's a huge standoff between the left and the right side of our governments, if you will, in those houses, right? And until they come up with some legislation that can be agreed upon by both sides on the aisle and actually push through, whether it's de-scheduling or or rescheduling or decriminalization, right? One of those two things, nothing is going to change from a mass cultural stigma. Nothing's going to change until that happens, right? And and then when that happens, you're going to see all of these other governing bodies like NIST, like FDA, like the DEA, they're going to change all of how they behave. And then that's going to help accelerate and potentially be the huge catalyst that really, really drives the old way of thinking, if you will, from the last 60 years out of our society, right? And I'd like to believe that if the US does that, that it's going to be a cascading effect across the globe, right? Then Europe's going to be like, okay, maybe it's a good idea. And you're going to see all of these other countries across the entire globe kind of follow suit, hopefully, right? That's the idea. Germany's got an upcoming election on September 26, and apparently four out of the six parties there are running on legalizing adult-use cannabis because that's become a really big issue there. So that we're seeing that first and foremost. So I'm glad that you touched on that. And I think it's big to mention that the U.S. is obviously the global leader. So what the U.S. does, everyone else will follow. And just to touch on the history, 1961, I think it was a U.N. convention or there was some sort of thing, but this is where Harry Anslinger, who was in charge of making cannabis illegal back then, he basically bullied the rest of the world into following the U.S. drug policy and said that if you don't do it, we're going to veto anything you try to get done. So don't even try. And so it's like when you think the laws are still in place based on that sort of mentality and that sort of negotiation, we just have to unlock that that next step to, to see what can happen. But I do think once the U.S. does it, it's going to be a domino effect and be faster. It'll speed up the process. So let's kind of tie that into from an investment standpoint. The roadmap that Kellen presented to us obviously is going to take some time. Jordan, I'm sure you get flooded with this question, right? You keep talking about fundamentals. The numbers are great. My stock price is down. Yeah. Why? Because I want to quote Ben Graham, in the short term, the market is a voting machine, but in the long term, the market is a weighing machine. So yes, it it seems weird that the fundamentals are so good and the share prices are down, but those don't always correlate. And that's where opportunity is actually found in the market. But I think the other thing to remind people, and this is where most people aren't going to understand and they might miss the boat, is that the media, I think, is always going to push that federal legalization needs to happen for these companies to be successful. And if you're following that narrative, then you're going to think that the big opportunity would be to buy the compromise bill maybe next year getting passed. But I think if anyone's been a bit more focused and paying attention themselves, it is a state-led story, right? And states' rights do supersede, come before, yeah, come before federal rights. So fundamentally, I think that's a very important thing to understand. And like you said, if you're living in a state where it's not legal, you don't know that it's a different world versus states that are. So that, that's ultimately why, though, just because they don't correlate, but that's where opportunities found. So I think if, if you've done the research and you've read enough on it, like I think you probably see what we're seeing as an investor. Yeah. And like I, I think you said it really well about that's where the opportunity lies, because I think sometimes people are so short-sighted and looking for that instant gratification of, 
I bought this stock six weeks ago. And since then, it's traded even and then down. I'm going to move into something more aggressive. Crypto, one of these uh, meme stocks, I think. I just want to use this to tie that to the example with your buddy. Your buddy also said stocks. It's like, hey, don't forget, you're investing in a real company, not just a stock, right? So it's it's so easy to overcomplicate it, but like unconvince yourself by doing that, you know? like And if you even kind of continue on that roadmap where if you kind of take a step back, right, from an investment standpoint, and then take a step forward and think to yourself, okay, I invested in February, stock prices traded down, but New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Maryland, Pennsylvania, all of the East Coast is coming online. New Mexico, Virginia. Right. And we're just like, this is just in the foreseeable future we're talking about. Like a small cluster of states are coming online. And New Jersey is going to be online November, according to Boris, I believe. So yeah, hopefully New York will get their their stuff together. But it's good that Cuomo's gone because that might speed up the process too. Everything forward. Let's just move forward. Perfect storm. Yeah. <laughs> the thought process and the question I always pose to my my friends when they ask me that is like, who do you think is going to get that piece of the puzzle, right? That 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 piece of the the pie when it gets split up. It's the companies operating in those states. And look at some of these numbers that they're projecting from a market size standpoint. I mean, these are massive, massive markets that are just currently untouched. And then all of a sudden, they're just going to hand out. 20%, 30%, 15%, 8%. And those are just massive movements to these fish that are just massive already. And I think that's the part that's so wild to me is that like, if you take a more forward approach and more of a, a higher level approach and, and think about the future of what the space is, we're still in the first inning. Of course. Yeah. And and I don't I don't necessarily do a whole lot of future growth valuations like I imagine a lot of technical investors do with Tesla or Amazon, but I don't see why you would not put a cannabis company in that exact same category or even more potential growth because 100% growth year over year, pretty evident for all of them still, you know, in like their third or fourth year of operation. And then like you said, they're just getting better. I completely agree. We might be in the second inning or we might've just gotten there, but it's still so early long-term. But I think too, people often look back, right? And instead of looking forward and that's their biggest mistake. Yeah. And so. it, it's it's just so wild too, because like these companies release these blowout earnings and people's first response is, well, the stock price went down. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Now I got a question for you guys, actually, just to flip it. Um, Are you guys getting a lot of good questions that poke holes in the thesis? Because that's one thing I'm always trying to get people to poke holes and try and find gaps in the story. But the only gap anyone can say is like, but the share prices are down, which is good because that doesn't poke any hole in the thesis, right? I've had one kind of conversation that's been reoccurring in terms of investing instead of trading cannabis stocks. Right. Right. And the one kind of pushback I get from a lot of individuals that are more sophisticated than me is parking their money in a cannabis stock right now. Because there's only one, I think, that technically pays dividends, right? And so that the whole dividend aspect of it and the security from a long-term perspective, that's a big pushback I get in terms of, oh, it's not, do I invest in cannabis or do I not? It's, do I invest in cannabis or do I invest in another sector? Right. And with the entire market, showing so much growth, at least in the US, a lot of individuals have pulled their money out of cannabis because they're trading cannabis stocks. So you see this huge volatility. They're not investing in cannabis companies because there's no incentive. They say, okay, yeah, it's a potential growth story like Amazon or like Google or Alphabet, excuse me, right? But there's no like passive income for individuals to just park their money there for 10 years while they live off of the dividends or something like that. So that's one pushback I've been given as far as like the true investing in the cannabis sector. That seems more of just personal methodology versus actual 
what we're seeing unfold though. So that's helpful, but, and, and that makes total sense. But at the same time, like, I just got to ask you guys too, like, is, are, you, are you guys cannabis connoisseurs or is it almost more of just like, you want to write the past wrong and you want this to get done and not to say that like you're letting your emotions get in the way, but like, it just doesn't seem like anything can stop this as if you're picking I, I, up steam. That's one of my biggest fears is that like, I feel like sometimes my circle gets kind of like a, a lot of confirmation bias and that kind of right. gives me some hesitancy. Same part, like I'm thinking about it and it's like, I am emotionally tied to this, which is probably the first reason you got to like tell yourself this is not a good thing. But then I think about it and look at the fundamentals and but think about okay. a forward approach. And then I tell myself, I'm like, all right, like whatever emotional fears that I have, make sure that it's a sizable portion so that it's diversified against my overall approach. And obviously different risk profiles for different people and everyone should consult an advisor. But yeah. the the pushback that I get often is it's the Canadian reference. Well, Aura and Canopy, they were doing great and now they got murdered. Why is the US going to be any different? Oh, that's I love that too, because that is like and, and it's true though, because in investing, the quote, this time it's different, is is obviously you don't want to say that too loosely or whatnot. But if you actually were to look at like the US companies ran to prices higher than they're trading at right now in 2018. So that's something crazy to think about because this time it really is different fundamentally in you know in that aspect. Obviously, saying that is just funny and that's the irony of it. But the US situation is very different. And that's why I think with what we saw in Canada in 2018, once safe passes, that allows trillions of assets under management, potentially billions, but you know, to flood in uh, if possible. And I think just as much as I've tried to find holes too and been like, okay. Like what could possibly go wrong? Obviously, you just want to make sure that you have enough cash, right, to last, so that you don't have to dip in. But I think Todd is a great point. Todd Harrison, uh, when he mentions that New York and uh, New Jersey need functional banking, right? And it, like that's the one thing that is like that's that's so true. And I don't think you can really argue that. And so so that's one thing that at least uh, that's the best case. I, like I, I I still think safe's a matter of when, not if, right? But it's just yeah. that's got to come for that to come online. So. So continue on that thesis though. Like when someone asked Jordan, why is it different this time? You know, why is it different than Canada? Why is the US different? What would you say to that? Well, so it's the amount of money that these companies are actually making on the ground. So in 2018, I recall Canopy, I think, was making maybe $20 million. Freya might have been making 25 or like in, in revenue, revenue. So not even earnings. And when Canopy was making 20 million in earning or in revenue, sorry, they were valued at $20 billion making 20 million in revenue. And then right like Canopy on August 6th, they just posted their numbers, 134 million or 136 million in revenue. They posted a positive net income just because of some of their biological assets, I'm sure. And then, you know, a, net, a loss of cash flow, loss of this. And then you look at Cureleaf, valued at 8 billion, posting 320 million in a single quarter. It's just like, it, it is night and day. It's just because since three years have passed, two groups of companies, Canadian LPs and US MSOs have been operating. Uh, Canadian LPs have been you know, growing a ton of cannabis for a market that they can't sell all that cannabis to, and therefore losing money versus, like you've explained, the, the the new markets opening up as these more efficiently run US MSOs are actually not, you know, burning the money that they've been given, uh, working with what they have, and you know, not pulling, not biting off more than they can chew. And we're just seeing the fruits of that labor. And so it's you do have to take that you do have to take that step back and see that that big overall view. But I think if if you can identify that, then the writing's on the wall. Yeah, I think it's also important to mention that I've heard that Cureleaf has actually had inventory problems in the U.S. in terms of not being able to grow enough cannabis to supply some of their markets in different states. Wow. So it's a it's a complete opposite problem. Exactly, and you just have ten times the people. Yeah, so yeah, many people. That too, yeah. Like California has more people than Canada. That is something <laughs> people just don't 
you know, Who California, fifth largest country in the world by GDP. It's like yeah. people don't grasp that, right? Like no. they don't grasp that concept. And they, and another concept I don't think is, is understood enough is this whole vertical integration scheme and this interstate, this inability to kind of operate like economies of scale. And I think we've talked about this a bunch on this podcast that like this is just another hurdle that the cannabis operators have to fight through that are going to have to change their their business line. And when they do get these kind of chains released and they're able to kind of double down on what they do best, then you can really see core competencies and unique selling points kind of start to shine through. And yeah. then you can see the real growth happen, right? Like right now, they're making handover, like just outrageous amounts of money. Like Helen was saying with Purely, they don't have enough product to keep on the shelf. Like that's just an insane concept. And then here we are on the East Coast. We don't even have dispensaries open. We don't know when from New York standpoint, hopefully soon, like you said. And this is the part where it's really attractive. And I guess coming back to you, Jordan, when was the last time or in history, what other sort of opportunities do you see that you can kind of associate with something like cannabis? Yeah, I think it's a good point you mentioned is that I think most people don't comprehend the scale because it's really difficult and you have to almost practice every day to try and get that into wraps. But I do compare this to like tech in the late 90s. And obviously I wasn't alive or uh, versed in investing then or whatnot. But I remember saying as a teenager, like when I'm an adult, like I'm... I would not have missed out on investing in Apple or Amazon, even though I don't, I didn't know anything about investing. For some reason, I remembered saying that to myself. And I'm glad I said that and remember that because it almost stuck in like, just when I get older, if there's a big opportunity like this, then I want to make sure that I'm in and I'm not going to miss out because it's just like, you know, being concentrated in an opportunity this potentially big, just based on all the fundamentals. Um, you know, that's where I would say someone who doesn't see this as a good place to park your money. Time in the market's better than timing the market for such a big sort of opportunity. But yeah, I would I'd compare it to tech because well, prohibition, like my thought too is when I when I you've probably heard me say this on the channel, prohibition only ends once in a lifetime, usually. Right. And like how lucky is that? But then the US is 50 individual prohibitions, 18 of which have sort of been, you know, reformed. Only 12 or so are online. We haven't even seen the other six come online. And then you've got another 32 states. So how are we not going to be able to play this entire, you know, the cycles of this industry for the next decade? I don't see how that's not an option. The opportunity there too is that from a, a retail investor, yeah. it's, you have an opportunity that's never, ever been presented yeah. as opposed to any other industry. Because right now, I think it's like 4% of institutions actually are invested in the industry. And with this kind of growth potential... To be able to participate in something that the big banks can't, that right there is a generational wealth opportunity in and of itself. You know what I mean? Because they're gonna, they want to, they're gonna want in based on just the fundamentals of these companies. Yeah, I can imagine. And it's it's weird seeing all of how, you know, whether whether banks are not allowing people to buy, but then you know, so that's typically why we we might see more selling because if people can't buy more, but get impatient. But yeah, I think so. Anyone that has enough wealth or money, they're going to be wanting to get in in the next six months. And that's why we're seeing all this momentum and probably some positive results of the lobbying effort we've seen over the summer so far. And it's just like, I just think it's going to carry on through. Yeah. I think it's going to surprise a lot of people. I think people have heard cannabis and they're, they know about the opportunity. They might not be familiar with some of the bigger players, which they should check out your channel and listen to our podcast, if not sure. But I think at the same breath, I think when they see the real fundamentals and they see the total, total size of these companies, they're going to be blown away by what they've been able to accomplish. And I wonder when we have that first outside industry acquisition kind of come into the space for just a ridiculous amount of money, I think that's when you'll see people go, oh, this is real. Like there's some real companies in here that are, are starting to really dominate the space. And I think that's going to be the biggest push forward. Yeah. And I don't, I don't want to sound too like 
not to say, I'll just, I'll say it first instead, but just like, we don't know what we don't know, right? So as, as a retail investor too, we don't know how high US capital, once they are allowed to get in, we don't know how high they can take this. And I'm not to say that they're, you know, these companies are going to be worth a hundred billion or anything like that. But if you look at Canada in 2018 and these companies were making 20 million in revenue and they got up to 20 billion worth of valuation, there's no reason to believe that when given the opportunity, these companies wouldn't re-rate, you know, shoot up to high 30, 40, most probably more because they're in the US and because the numbers are so much better. It's just, you know, because it hasn't happened, we can't imagine it. But I, I just, I do think, like you say, it's going to surprise people because it's going to be quick like it has in the past, right? When it happens, it happens fast. Very and fast. you don't want to be chasing, you want to be in. So yeah, that's sort of, I see it that same way. So I, I guess one of the negative standpoints that I think can get brought up, and I think we should do a better job of, of addressing some of those, because I think sometimes people, we do kind of like pro confirmation bias. That's kind of what this circle is. So one of the hesitancies that I think some people come to address and say is like, well, talk about the vaping market and how like that had a negative effect. I think there's going to be continued to have negative PR. So Kellen, from your standpoint, obviously cannabis, there's safety issues because people are unsure of exactly what's happening. Plus people are consuming black market products and consuming products from gas stations. Is there any hesitancies from your standpoint that safety could be a reason or health concerns could be a reason that cannabis never makes it to, to the valuation Jordan's talking about? Yeah. I mean, I've had some conversations with some of my friends and there, it is a, a really unique point in time that cannabis is at right now. I mean, right now you can go purchase cannabis flower that it's clearly unadulterated. It's the flower from the plant. They haven't added anything. And, and I compare it to, or I didn't, but my buddy compared it to the tobacco industry in the early 1900s. Right. And so. If we get to a point where cannabis starts to be adulterated, and we saw that in the the vape industry with the vape crisis in early 2019, and and granted, it wasn't legal companies; it was the illicit market cutting it as they do with other um, illegal nar- narcotics in terms of stretching what they purchased, right? But at the same time, if that occurs in other product SKUs across the the cannabis industry. It could quickly change the conversation to look at how bad these products are for you. It's a giant health crisis. Cause I mean, in the early 1930s, doctors were recommending cigarettes and there was no huge health consequences. And then it turns out when they started adding all these addictive chemicals and doing all of these immoral like they, things, go like ahead. They said opioids are healthy for you too, though. Right. Totally. Right. So yeah. like that's one area I see that could potentially be detrimental from a PR perspective for the industry, right? But I think that the way around that is federal legalization and regulation. Do you know what I mean? Like legalize it and then we can regulate it and we won't have to deal with these issues, you know? That's the craziest thing. It's like there is no black market issue of, you know, stuff coming from China or just wherever stuff being created uh, without knowing the safety of it if you just create a legalized market. <laughs> right. <laughs> Besides, the, like, that, that's what baffles my mind. At least to, to counter what your friends say, like, it sucks in a, from a PR standpoint. And what's sad is that PR is going to be what's pumped out. But I mean, the good thing is, is there's also studies like the 1894 British Raj Commission, the Ladane Commission, the LaGuardia Commission, the Schaefer Commission, all these studies over the years, Ganja in Jamaica, basically the US government paid top tier academics to study cannabis and all of them could not find any negative harm to the human body. 
besides obviously putting smoke in your lungs is not good. So that's moderation. Anyone should practice any smoking moderation if you're going to. But like the whole idea is that like we've checked and there's no negative effects. So the only thing left is to deschedule it so that we can actually see what the positive effects are. But like you said, it's PR is different from reality. So and I mean, THC has like they've done huge toxicology reports on THC because it's a pharmaceutical, right? Like you can go get prescribed a THC pill. Right. So like they've done toxicology analysis on it and it's clearly very safe to subscribe as a pharmaceutical. Really? Well, because I wasn't even aware of that. Yeah, yeah, no, like right. Delta. So Delta 8 and Delta 9 have toxicology studies done on them. We were actually yeah. talking to a, a pharmaceutical chemist who was mentioning these things. And like, he's like, they're completely safe to consume because they had to do those for the pharmaceutical versions of them that are prescribed right. for cancer patients at this point. Gotcha. Is that Dronabol? Dronabinol and then Syntec, I think, is the other one, right? Is that what it was, Brian? Syntax or something? Maybe Epidural. I'm not sure. But yeah, yeah, that that too. Yeah, but they're safe. And so it's like... The whole, like, THC is as legitimate of a medicine on this earth as we could possibly have. Period. But it's been stigmatized for so long. And I think some people have these issues with kind of getting past if you challenge them. And say like, hey, I know you've thought this way for 63 years, but I'm sorry, you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. And this report says it and they're like, who are you, dude? And can how we, long have you been in this space? Can we use this to go back and I can do the history bit with uh, yes. do it. Yes. Dancinger and stuff? Yes, I, do wanna, I, I forgot to mention that. So it's just, it's very interesting because I, I read a few books, like obviously um, The Emperor That Wears No Clothes by Jack Herer. That was one. There, there were three or four that I read last year that sort of inspired that series. But yeah, looking at it, there's obviously just players back then that, we're in positions of power and, you know, had the ability to make decisions that put the laws in place that they are now. And like, it's just the crazy part is, is that they're still in law in place today. Right. And we haven't changed them. But so let's say, let's go back to 1930s. There's a lot of immigration coming from Mexico and one way to sort of instill fear, or at least make it seem as if there's, you know, reason to be afraid of this immigration. So William Randolph Hearst was a man. So he's one of the three players. I'll, I'll name them out. Harry Anslinger, who was head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Then we have William Randolph Hearst, who was, uh, think of like a um, a media empire magnet back then. Uh, and he created the yellow, I forget the word for it, but yellow sort of eye-popping sensationalist uh, newspaper articles as opposed to real reporting. And then Andrew Mellon, Andrew Mellon, who was the secretary or the secretary treasury of the US um, back then, he also happened to be the banker for DuPont Chemical. So, and I've looked at the history, I don't know about you guys, and it's not like I want to be politically correct, but I only use the term cannabis for cannabis and hemp for hemp. So William Randolph Hearst, with his media empire of uh, newspapers, was like, well, if we call it marijuana, it's going to sound Mexican. And that way we can tie it to evil behavior um, and use it against the immigration problem. So that's one way to get this message out into the media and completely misinform them. And then around that same time, prohibition of alcohol ended. And there was a former division for that, Federal Bureau of Prohibition, I forget something like that, but then that ended. And then Harry J. Anslinger was the head of that, uh, a government bureaucrat. And then when that ended, he ended up being recruited to become head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. So it's almost like, well, since everyone wants alcohol, we need to find a new enemy in a way. And it also happened that his brother-in-law was Andrew Mellon, who happened to be one of the wealth wealth magnets uh, from the East Coast like 100 years ago. If you know Carnegie Mellon University, Mellon, M-E-L-L-O-N, it's just very common. But so he was the Treasury Secretary. And his brother-in-law was Henry J. Anslinger. So convenient though, right? That he could just put his brother-in-law married to his wife in a position. But then at the same time, this treasury secretary who could do that, he also happened to be the banker for DuPont. And DuPont in 1934 was creating a synthetic fiber called nylon. And if you look at hemp, 
hemp is the most strongest natural fiber in the world. So if you can make the hemp plant illegal or if you can create a tax so that people aren't going to grow it, then DuPont's going to make a heck of a lot of money selling synthetic fiber nylon. So, you know, that just, it also just happened to line and sink. Um, and then it was, it happened to be though in 1937, where Harry J. Anslinger ends up pushing towards like the American Medical Association that marijuana is evil or marijuana is bad. We need to get rid of it. And that's where the doctors are like, what's marijuana? Like we know cannabis because cannabis is the name of the plant. And so just imagine over years of, you know, people in power being able to use that power. They basically just made cannabis a little, they made it, uh, they introduced the tax. So farmers couldn't grow it. Uh, otherwise you'd be taxed. And back then you, you wouldn't risk growing it to be taxed as, you know, everyone was making like five, $10 a day sort of thing back then. Um, but what's crazy is too, is that World War II came around and the U S needed to legalize hemp. So they got all the hemp farmers to grow as much hemp as possible so they can win the war for rope and like uh, lubricants for airplane wheels and all that stuff. So like they brought it back. And then after they won the war, they're like, okay, we need to make it illegal again, which is just so stupid, but that's all out there in the history, if you want to look at it. And then last thing though, um, when I mentioned cannabis was introduced in the US pharmacopoeia in 1850 or 1842 or something like that, 1852, Harry J. Anslinger was the one that removed it after World War II or mid World War II in 1942. He, who has no scientific basis or no scientific training whatsoever, was able to remove something from the US pharmacopoeia as if, you know, it, it, it just, that all happened. And then that led into the 60s where he forced the UN, every other country to sort of oblige by the, you can just imagine how that all happened because no one had the internet, no one had access to free information, no one had the ability to object. But what's crazy is that those are still, and then Nixon in the 71, he was like, wow, we can make a lot of money if we find an enemy to to arrest and criminalize creating the prison industrial complex. And yeah, so... It's one of those where I feel like we need like a Netflix documentary in order to do that for a lot of people to be like, wait a minute. Like, is that really what happened? And they're like, this is some horseshit. Well, yeah, I mean, you can go to my YouTube channel and check that out. And in episodes five, I cover five and six. I do like the history of the plant and then yeah. the history of the U.S. And I mean, it's long, but it, it's it's all there. And it's just like shit. Was it eye opening for you when you were kind of going through it? It was. And who knows what their intentions were back then? They probably knew that they could make money. And they're not saying like, oh, well, if we make this plant illegal, then no one else gets it. It's just like, oh no, this will make better, you know, nylon will sell more or something like that. The intent probably like they never intended for it to last this long and to go this big, I imagine. But, you know, here we are today. It was eye-opening. It was crazy. And all I could try and do was try and present it in a way that people would want to watch it. So they're probably like, this got out of control quickly. Yeah, it it, it does. Like we just think when no one does anything to object, right? And just to think like, if individuals hadn't started pushing and, you know, fighting for cannabis legalization themselves in individual states, how much, you know, we, we yeah. wouldn't be where we are now. So it's all about the individual on the ground willing to say, no, this is, this is crap. Cannabis has helped me. And, you know, I want to share, get that story out there. So. so, so let's go back to the individuals, right? I think a question that Kellen and I always get asked that we'd love for kind of your insight on is from a fundamental standpoint, we've got all these different companies operating in the cannabis space, specifically here in the U.S. How do you, Jordan, make an informed decision and understand which one of these companies you would like to say, this is how I separate the companies. This is what I would recommend. Good question. Um, so I, I would say I'm a student of Warren Buffett, naturally, starting with like the intelligent investor and a few of these. So for me, it was originally looking for underpriced value or a good margin of safety. So I typically like to look at the market cap of the, the overall company. Because that's really what matters. It's like when people talk about the share price being, oh, truly is more expensive than Cresco. I should buy Cresco. It's like, no, that's not what it means, though. Regardless, um, I like to look at market cap price to sales. And 
you know, also for myself, like I just, I like to be looking at the numbers constantly. And one of the reasons I do my show is because it keeps me in check. Obviously I get a bit of confirmation bias, but like, I, I do look for other stories that, that would tell otherwise, but me doing that two times or three times a week, just make sure that everything I've checked, you know, my plan's still in line. But I, th- I think if you were to look at any other industry, any other industry that is allowed to trade on the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ, and you looked at their market cap versus their price to sales, especially if they're in a growth industry and there's still growth to come, you can find those companies trading at a price to sales of at least 20x, uh, especially if it's a high growth industry, at least, at least. And then when you look at the market cap to 2021 revenue estimates versus even 2022 revenue estimates, and we're already in August 2021, right? Like time is going by very quickly. When you see these price to sales are sitting at three, four, five, that's all I need to know. Like there's nothing else. <laughs> no one, it's it's that. And then it's seeing, you know, Illinois sales growing every single month. And man, it's just that 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 Colorado blueprint, seeing what Colorado has done from 2014 to now, it's safe to say that just based on the fact that people have always consumed cannabis and it's not like they're creating a new market for a new product. They're just creating a legal one. It's just it's a no-brainer. But that that's really the one main metric I look at. Obviously, you want to see what earnings and all that, but I'm not trained in finance. So I, I like to just know that you know these few boxes are checked on the ground and, and that's enough for me, I think. I think that's really well said. So let's continue on that route. What is the biggest misconception since you've kind of been headfirst into the cannabis space? That's a good question. Well, I, th- I think a big one is that they need federal legalization. Um, and I, I think I didn't mention this earlier, but I'm glad that you asked this so I can bring it back. In 2018, when we saw the big bull run, that's when August first or second few days into August, Constellation Brands invests five billion into Canopy, right? And that's that that's when it took off. And like at that point, I'd invested about 12 grand into Fria. And I had made a plan. I told myself, hey Jordan, when on October 17th, you're gonna sell all of your shares. And then October 17th rolled around and I didn't know anything. I got greedy. I was like, no, this is gonna keep growing up. You know, classic mistake. But the, the whole idea for me was like if as long as I don't sell, I won't lose anything. And you know, it was a long process, but again, I'm glad I, I held out and I averaged down and whatnot. But that, that whole point saying is that like I think people are going to think in the U.S. federal legalization is going to be that big moment that Canada had, but we know as investors that I think it's it's safe. It's it's allowing the capital to flow in. So I think the biggest misconception is just that as time goes on, I think federal legalization is going to take longer and longer. And at the same time, when 91% of America wants it legalized and we're technically living in a democracy, I think at some point you got to make the rules line up with everything too. So like I imagine they're they're pushing for that, but. Regardless of how long that takes, I think the biggest misconception for investors is just keep educating yourself and just looking into why SAFE is that that big catalyst and not federal legalization. But I do feel that when SAFE would come, we might see the numbers go super, super high, like overvalued, come pull back down. And then that, you know, whenever that date of legalization, like, it's the same thing. It's just, it's a cycle. And I think the biggest misconception is that it's a one and done thing too. Like you can probably play the cycles in the coming years sort of thing because we have so many different separated markets coming online and stuff. So it's just, yeah. I would love to see an article that summarized what other aspects 90% of the United States agreed on because I don't think there's going to be many. I just don't think there's many things. I mean, you could probably find maybe one hand's worth of items and maybe we should spend some time on the internet looking to see that. But I'd be curious to know how many there really were. Maybe you shouldn't raise your kids to lie. That's probably one thing 92% can agree on. <laughs> maybe. I don't know about this maybe. day. Maybe. 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 Yeah. There'll be some research study that says like lying is like good for your kids. Um, <laughs> it, it, it keeps your feelings safe, right? Right. Something like that. Like, well, you hurt her feelings. So like, yeah, to lie. All right. Continuing on. Before we do predictions, we ask all of our guests, 
If you can sum up your experience into a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass onto the next generation, what would that be? Learn to trust yourself. Again, I think that's a big thing. Like being able to become a clearer thinker uh, and think critically, and then being able to trust yourself. Because believe me, for the two years that I had invested in Afria and then you know began averaging down, that was me basically building the stomach to be an investor, but testing everything that I had learned reading the intelligent investor and all these different books. And it wasn't easy. But the moment that Afria went from, you know, $3 in March to, to $35 last February, it sort of made it all worth it. And that gave me the confidence that like, wow, I did this once and it was right. And so like, just to say the, the culture, you go to school and all that, you're going to learn a bunch of stuff, right? And you might be learn you might be taught a lot of what to think, not necessarily how to think. And so you mean to say like investing in yourself, but trying to trust yourself. It's, I don't know. The more we get older, the more we think that all the answers lie out there, right? But if you can just find the data and do the digging yourself, I think it's just very worthwhile. So just flex that muscle as much as you can, because when you're right, it gives you that confidence and you can keep building that snowball. Well said. All right. It's prediction time. <laughs> what is the number one lesson that either the U.S. or the individuals operating in the U.S. can learn from the Canadian process of cannabis? Don't allow a big tobacco or a big uh, alcohol to get involved. My one thought is just like, obviously now we want to see this happen because cannabis should be legalized for you know personal choice and just the freedom of that. But like every other industry that becomes corporatized, that's my one worry down the line. So maybe just like, Let's just say I don't keep doing what they're doing. Like what we saw in Canada, it just it can't happen though in the US. I just I don't think that's possible. So I want to say that actually, maybe that's the answer, but stick to your guns and trust your gut. Cause what they've been doing seems to work fine, right? So like also, you know what? Is just like kill them with kindness. Cause I think that's the best thing that they've done so far. But they're doing it as best like that's how you gotta do it. So Kellen? That once federal legalization occurs, it's not just gonna be like you can go buy pot anywhere you want, or you can go get cannabis anywhere you want. And if you're an operator, if federal legalization happens, it's not like you're the next day, you're just going to sell out every single day moving forward. That I mean, it, it's still, you're still going to have to build a solid company. These companies are still going to have to figure out where to put their best people in what positions. And they're still going to have to run sound businesses. But it's just going to be a relief that once it does occur from a federal standpoint, but it's not going to change everything overnight having federal legalization occur. No, I would add too, though, like individuals, let's get these nonviolent drug offenders out of jail. That's huge. <laughs> like, Unbelievable. Because Unbelievable. listening to, oh, it wasn't your podcast, but it was another one recently with the D'Angelo brothers and just saying how like, that's not the case where they just get released. Like it takes time and it, it should be the people that put them in jail that should be the ones taking initiative to get them out. That's not the case. No way. So that should be the priority, even like right now in every state that is legalized. For so, me, I'm going to go with the fact that like, even in Canada, when they were operating in 2018, the industry is still so early. There's still so much to learn, to uncover, to, to understand in order to improve. And I think patience is going to be such a crucial factor where I think there's a misconception where it's like, oh, you're in cannabis, you must be doing really well. And I think that's kind of a misconception that people don't realize is that the industry is hard. There's all these additional challenges and it's still so early that, that it's not as established where there aren't these normal practices like in tech or in oil and gas. And I think if you're out there and you're wondering about being in the space, it's still 
very early, but there's still all these challenges. So I think you can learn from what Canada did, but I think the US is going to make a ton more of their mistakes. And I think we're still so early and we've got a ton more mistakes to continue learn, uh, to make. 100%. And we're still in the first inning. Like that's what's crazy. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Cool. So Stuart Jordan, for our listeners that want to get in touch, they want to learn more and they want to see your videos, where should they go? Uh, they can check out my content on YouTube. So the channel is at Make More, make more Capital. I do three episodes a week right now. So Wednesday, Friday, and Sunday. Typically Sunday is the good one with This Week in Cannabis News, but I just there's just so much news. And so I just try to pump out whatever I can. And again, it helps me with the research. But other than that, if you're on TikTok, I actually go by Highly Invested. So it's a different handle in there. Um, Instagram, Make More Capital. And I had a podcast too called Highly Invested. So people can check that out. But that was more of like my entrepreneurship journey. And same idea you guys are doing, communicating with other like-minded people to learn and just share the knowledge. So all those places. We'll, we'll link that all up in the show notes and we'll have to have you come back on. And when we, uh, we get some good announcements here and kind of dive into the fundamentals. So appreciate your time. Thanks, Jordan. Thank you guys for having me. It's been a pleasure. And yes, after safe, let's do that. So then we can uh, yes. <laughs> go over that, but then also prepare that like, there's still going to be lots to come because there's still so many states that haven't even gotten started. So right. We can all be here celebrating with champagne as our stock prices just go right down. And cannabis. <laughs> Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, my name is Leah Babrudi, and I'm the founder and host of Canachicks Podcast, where I discuss cannabis, psychedelics, and other natural medicines. I not only interview people who use them as treatment for different conditions, but also the entrepreneurs who share their knowledge on how they built their businesses. If this sounds interesting to you, give my show a listen. I'm sure you'll learn something that'll surprise you.